This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. How's it going? It's chilly. See how I used how's it going instead of how are you? Because yeah. the how are you is, is way more like it, it, it tends to be Hello. authentic. I'm fine. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, clearly Siri has been listening to our conversations and, and wants to fuck with us by bringing in the thesis of what I'm trying to uh, say right now, which is you should not say how's it going or how are you I mean not how's it going you should not say how are, how are you if you don't really mean it so thank you for tuning in to the Naked Dialogue podcast are you gonna take the vaccine <laughs> let's get to the let's get mm-hmm. to the real tea yeah why are there excessively skeptical people today because of the whole question of free will in 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 just like society in general like everyone just questions like why can't i refuse to take the vaccine like it's not a human right or human fundamental law that i have to take it i can always question it so there's always you know this whole all most of the problems we have today are based on the free will argument you know am i allowed to talk about this can i talk about this or like there's always that kind of like thinking And so that's why, you know, I feel like democracy is always inherently flawed because, like, it's it's not the perfect political system we think it is. It never will be. Because no, you know, political system is perfect. There's, if there's flaws in communism, there's flaws in democracy, there's flaws in socialism. You know, there's no perfect structure which is going to fit in all the categories or all the ideas that everyone wants, you know, to be accepted in society. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be selective at at a certain level. So it's just like what suits society well, okay, democracy does, but then also maybe respect the ideas of democracy in order for the structure to actually function. Because like people would go to protests, and then they would riot, and they they would, and then they would loot, and stuff like that. So you're you're demanding for human rights by violating them, at the at the at the same time. So it refutes the whole purpose, right, of demanding any kind of justice or any kind of thing or doing any kind of democratic movement because you already violated the fundamental law of it, which is to be. Hold for sound. <laughs> I can't tell if it was Hebrew or I opened a thousand plateaus by Gilles Deleuze, the the writer who was uh, Guattari, who was a psychotherapist, joined forces and wrote two volumes um, that are called.
capitalism and schizophrenia. And it's a, a very original read that develops a language of its own. And I, I, I opened the page up to, uh, to a specific one using Command F. <laughs> o sole God, like whom there is no other, thou didst create the world according to thy desire, whilst thou wert alone, all men, cattle, and wild beasts, whatever is on the earth going upon its feet, and what is on high flying with its wing. The countries of Syria and Nubia, the land of Egypt, thou settest every man in his place. Thou suppliest their necessity. Everyone has his food, and his time of life is reckoned. Their tongues are separated in speech, and their natures as well. Their skins are distinguished, as thou distinguishest the foreign peoples. All work is laid aside when thou settest in the west. But when thou risest again, everything is made to flourish for the king. Since thou didst found the earth and raise them up for thy son, came forth from thy body, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Aken Atom, and the chief wife of the king Nefertiti, living and youthful forever and ever. Thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you feeling? What's up? Oh, I feel, I feel good. That was, it was really good to say this. It was completely transitive. Mm -hmm. It was meditative to a huge degree. How was it so meditative, though? I feel like, um... I have completed a ceremony in reading this out loud, um, and I feel uh, enlightened, but in the sense that lightened is in made less heavy, um, in the sense that there's that a ton is radiating through my body and through my every capillary and giving me his strength, and I feel the vibrations. I'm not shitting you, guys. I swear. you. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I feel I feel like that, you know when you just come and you all full body orgasm. Yeah. So I feel radiated. I feel wait, Aton. Yes, of course. The one God. Aton. His grace, his great of majesty, great of majesty is Aton. Of two Egypts, both the higher and the lower Egypt. The lands of Syria and Nubia. As well. The Nile of the heaven is for the foreign peoples. The Nile of the underworld flows for Egypt. For both Egypts. All the Egypts. All of the There's Egypt. Egypt you didn't know. All of the all of the Egypts in Egypt. Find Egypt in yourself. Everyone has a piece of Egypt <laughs> in himself. Exactly. Can so, I be on your podcast as like is this it? Hey guys, you are on the podcast. Okay. After three hours of conversation. Yeah, I mean like this is a this is a podcast, you know. Like No, I wish I could do that man, but it's like you never know who the fuck you're fucking with. Like, you know, like, I have no idea who I'm talking to, you know. And, like, if I just talk, start talking and never tell them. And, you know, maybe they said a lot of things that you should not, you know, probably post on a podcast. Run it by them at the end and say, are you okay with the things you said about Hitler? Because <laughs> no. I was recording you the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Lots of people are going to say, yeah, it's cool, whatever. <laughs> It probably is cool. Like, Abraham is taking naps. <laughs> we gotta have Josh on the podcast. Abraham, we yeah, need to make yeah. this happen. We need to get in contact with us. Who is this guy, Josh? Stellar Toad. He's a young shaman in the plains of the U.S. Somewhere lost in the middle of the country. And he's around I think he's 15 in, or 16. Washington. He seems like a, a very nice fella. Uh, one time I was just chilling. <clears throat> As all good stories start, and Abraham <laughs> sends me a link to a YouTube video, and the link, open the link, and just a couple hundred views, 
a channel that has about a, a, a 117 subscribers at the moment I clicked it. Obviously, the first thing I, I told everyone was, how the fuck did you come across this channel? Um, I was just searching up shadow work videos and you know, I got up here. And it's a kid who's talking about um, spirituality and transcending planes of existence and how to astrally project yourself. Non-metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He stresses the it's not a metaphor slogan just to make sure that everyone believes him and his crazy theosophy. But uh, yeah, he seems like someone competent enough to have a possibly good podcast with. We just, you know, just find out who he is. That's a podcast in itself. He seems pretty transparent already in his videos. I don't, I don't know if we're going to deepen too much. But yeah, yeah, we can do personal questions without a doubt. So, is, when is uh, episode two coming out? Of the funeral? Or is it ever gonna like be that we'll have a second episode? There will be a second episode, but the format of each is gonna change radically from podcast to podcast. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know when it's gonna come out. I can't give a due, a due date or a, a deadline. <laughs> the radical left. <laughs> I mean, it's it's okay, I get it, but I can't, you know, that's, like, that's, that's going a bit too far. It's mm -hmm. going a bit too far. Concatenate them into this trash bag in which, to which we will refer in generalities. Because I'm, I'm autistic, okay? <laughs> no way, you're autistic? I'm sure I'm autistic. Dude, what the fuck? I'm 100% autistic. Because people say, I'm autistic, yeah, I'm autistic. I have ADHD, yeah, I'm bipolar. And the thing about autism is that you have, a, you, you are drawn into introspection vehemently all the time mm -hmm. you can't escape it things happening around you are so foreign and so far removed from you things you can't process them because absolutely the most basic of human interaction is mind-boggling to you, you go, what the fuck is happening around me and someone just mm -hmm. said hello or got off a bus I was in that space for a while but also when you have access to that introspection mm -hmm. when you're that autistic uh, you also have an ability to hyperanalyze things in a way that only an autistic person can. You have access to a mind that is completely free of ADD. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have autism and ADD, it might be <laughs> more of a challenge. <laughs> uh, but you have intense focus because, for example, I would be able to memorize many digits of pi just because there was no, because nothing else outside had any meaning to me. So nothing else happening around me was affecting was was putting me off my path if you're focused on something for example then you know someone knocks at your door you're gonna be your mind's gonna be put put off put off for a second mm -hmm. so nothing happened i learned how to completely block out everything around me and then actually cure my autism mm -hmm. with in a way that only autism can with the sort of mindset and power uh and focus and, and clinical skills that I would apply earlier to memorizing digits of pi or solving Rubik's cubes and then actually fixing my autism. Yes. The cure is in the wound. The introspective ability of the autistic person allows them to navigate social interaction. Yeah, the autism what, doesn't what go away, but it's just much easier to manage. Yes, yeah, so you have to succeed despite your mental. It's like you say you're a neurotic or someone's ADD, you have to. You, or overthinking. You're always going to overthink. Those are never going to go away. You have to learn to use it as a strength. 
if you're highly distractible, use your hyper-distractibility as a power, find a way, because you have to, because otherwise you're just, you're, you're going to blame yourself or not. It's like if I were, Vlad and I were at a bar and we were asked by a couple of girls, are you having fun? Because <laughs> it was raining and I was living it. It was so fun, it was raining, it was amazing. Just nature being powerful all around us. And they asked us, are you having fun? Are you, are you actually enjoying this? And I said, I have to, because otherwise I would be suffering. Because I have two choices. And then they just went. Yeah, and they fucked up. <laughs> no, too, too deep. Too deep. They were like, too deep. Like, too deep for us. <laughs> yeah, these guys are uh, crazy. We would rather talk about oh. nail polish. You, when you were five or six, mm-hmm. getting to know your consciousness really well, do you think that you changed? Do you think that the core is still the same core that you have today? You like the same things? Or do you think... I mean, consciousness is fundamentally the same for everyone, but... But between you and yourself, between the age of 5, 6 and and 22? 20. 20. It's the the boat of the salus. I I mean, yeah, the subjective experience, obviously, combined with the external reality and your physical reality, is... You know, it's transforming continuously, but the consciousness is always the same. So yeah, like obviously people change, and you know, cause that's how we are. We always go forward in some or the other way. In any kind of process, there's always a, you know, linear structure, and you're just going forward. Yeah, but is your five or six year old self still in you? And is it is it essentially yeah, the same thing as, as you today? Yeah, it's is the it same, you? but we transform. Yeah, it's the same. Consciousness <laughs> is always same. But it's just like the other elements that change. So the way you're, you're reacting to external stimuli change from when you were five to when you're whatever age you're now, you know. Consciousness is always a, it's, it's fundamental. It's always there. So yeah, the other elements within consciousness were changed, but not consciousness itself. So yeah, I'm the same person I was when I but, was So you're five. associating with consciousness. Because consciousness is the base for it. Who will be your id? No, not even our id. Well, it goes beyond the id. There's no instinct. There's, like, there's no... But there's a drive know. to move forward, though. There's a drive to learn and be a blank page. Yeah, to naturally evolve over time. But then we prohibit ourselves, we impede ourselves from doing that because we craft layers around our inner core yeah, as defense, defense mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. And then we prohibit ourselves from learning and changing, from learning new things, from adding things to our repertoire, so mm-hmm. to speak. I was going to show you this. Yeah, I was like, I why is like there a tetrahedron? I, I left the bathroom, the first thing I see is a tetrahedral, octahedral shape. On yeah, no, he co- so Jung talks about, uh, he, he talks about Moses and this symbolical context. The higher Adam, it's the lower true. Adam. Yeah. Jethro, physical and spiritual father. Miriam, mother, sister, anime. Tsipova, wife of Moshe and daughter of Jethro. He's a Jethro, big leap. Tsipova, Abushe Tsipova. Jeffrey? Jethro. 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 Fucking podcasting. Yes, most of you, your own podcast, you have to accept it. Yeah. I don't think you've accepted it yet. I see the way you look at me. <laughs>
You have to accept that you're on a podcast. I accept the fact that I'm on a podcast. Please say the podcast. Well, you have to follow. The podcast is good. The podcast is the best. I love the podcast. Exactly. I love the podcast. It is the best. Do you like the podcast? I love I have to. What do you think about the podcast? It is me. You are the podcast? We are the podcast. We are all are the podcast. Yeah. It's like the Egypt, you know. Everyone is... Everyone is... Bless you. You also are on the podcast. The listener is the podcast. podcast Everyone is what's going on. Welcome to the Naked Dialogue. This is where dreams come true. There's an element of reality here. Quite dispensable of. Um... Yeah. Does Facebook still have good memes or... Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a hub. Hannah, I, I feel like I only... I really open Facebook. It's amazing. What do you It's use? like I've forgotten that, you know, Facebook is even a thing anymore. Have you transcended or have you shifted to another medium? Yeah, I feel like Instagram is, is probably like the only other app or WhatsApp that I actually use. Yeah. Instagram. Yeah. And Snapchat, like, I open probably once a day. What about Twitter? Snapchat friends. What? What about Twitter? Twitter, uh, yeah, I stopped looking at Twitter too. Like, I only look, like, Wait. probably once. If Trump were to die right now, I would get the news four minutes later from a friend. I don't need to know. That's the thing. Do I need to know that Melania Trump is in quarantine? <laughs> As a human, you can transcend your consciousness past human consciousness. Mm-hmm. And you can technically reach the same levels as a super intelligent AI. Is that what you're saying? AI is yeah. much lower oh than Oh my god, human. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Jesus Christ, AI is one compared to humans. 25,000 to the power of something. If you take the word deserve very seriously, what does AI, as you know, this mirror entity, deserve? AI deserves our complete usage uh, exploitation of it what about the rights of the and AI what if, an even more interesting question the threshold of AI transcending control over the human it won't happen but it can happen with ASI though like yeah. artificial you know super intelligences I think the tipping point is at cyborgs hear me out so uh, there will be there have... will be a socioeconomic war between those that have access to Neuralink and those that get left behind. Neuralink is nowhere near anything that makes us better to anything. So do you not believe in the promises of Elon Musk? It's going to get stupid. Instant access to all the information. It promises a complete restructuring of of also the neurological system, meaning that, that you could control your body that much better. You could technically control your prefrontal cortex out of your pure will. It would be meta will. Yeah, but you don't you would go have through the process of internalizing this process. You don't go through the process of trial and... Maybe that's part of the design in the software. You just bypass it. We've all, we, we know what, the, what bypassing things does to us. Yes, but you're assuming that as, as human potential that anyone could embark on. Yeah, but human implies the process of actually... Trying something, failing, or trying and getting better, stretching that muscle, getting more and more each time. Going through a process, learning how to ride a bike. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can assume that that might as well happen with having Neuralink installed in your brain. Yeah, but you would have to have all the memories that make you human. All the processes you went through to have made you human. You're not human. If you download 
the knowledge how to ride a bike. You have to try it. The very act of physically doing it is what makes you human. But that's that's compatible with, with what I'm saying, which is that it's going to be cyborgs versus the poor humans that get left behind. And both, I mean... Well, cyborgs will be able to like, annihilate us with weaponry. Absolutely. They will be well below the capability of buying a Neuralink and they themselves becoming a cyborg. And they will also be poor because they will have missed the w- joining the winning side. Yeah, you just detonate an EMP. My watch reminded me to get up. <laughs> what? My watch said up. Oh, I have to get up now. Do you guys know the Dunning Kruger effect? The what? 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 The Dunning Kruger effect. That mm-hmm. you you believe you outperform what you're actually performing and demonstrating to do. This is the graph. The graph rises very rapidly. Okay. That's your perception of. This is competence, and mm-hmm. this is confidence. This mm-hmm. is how much you think you know something. This is how much you're learning it. And so when you begin learning something. Mm-hmm. You learn how to do, for example, you learn Spanish. You learn how to mm-hmm. conjugate. You're like, wow, I know how to conjugate everything. Yeah. I know all the words. I can do anything. And your, your confidence is not there. And the, the more you actually learn it, the more you realize that you don't know it. That there's so much more to know. Mm-hmm. And then when you become an actual expert, the, it, it rises genuinely. But in the beginning, you, you start learning it. You think you know everything. Yeah. And this is the, what I described. Can you Google the Flynn effect? The what effect? And if you can add juice to the search query, that would be the good. The Flynn effect, juice? Yeah. The effect of Flynn? The Flynn effect is a substantial and long-sustained increase in both fluid and crystalline intelligence, test scores that were measured in many parts of the world over the 20th century. Uh, by intelligence quotient IQ, tests are initially standardized using a sample of test takers. By convention, the average of the test results is set to 100 and their standard deviation is set to 15 or 16 IQ points. When IQ tests are revised, they are again standardized using a new sample of test takers, usually born more recently in the first. Again, the average result is set to 100. However, when the new test subjects take the older test, in almost every case, their average scores are significantly over 100, meaning that IQ increases over time Mm. from generation to generation. Thank you for the meaningful gaze. <laughs> Do you like make diagrams for the ideas you yeah, like it's a very common, very normal thing to do. Yeah. I love doing it. But I love looking at the diagrams in the con. Like this is so good. Because it's almost as challenging as understanding some kind of a mathematical geometrical it's predicative logic yeah yeah but it's it's hard to follow if you don't know the concepts themselves you have to explain it to your audience but then also like the way he positions certain things certain places and like he would signify something with the writer so you would open up you know the book what's it called a critis or whatever and and you open it and it's just like even if you open like in in, in the middle of the book it, there's a, you know uh, a super um, condensed with information kind of diagram. Yeah, it's what he would call math memes. Yeah, it would the, come up right, the and you just of formulas. Yeah, it's it's the try best. Try to make the cycle into the equation because that's the goal. Oof. Yeah, but that's the, the thing. The laws of the cycle. So yeah. I've been reading way too much of Hume right for a long time now, and so now I can't like. If I'm reading too much of you, it's almost impossible for me to, you know, 
starting the con propaganda. I converted into the communism after being. I feel like I'm becoming more of a union now, cause like I, so I get dreams, right? And so the next morning, whenever I wake up, I'll take key points out of the dream. So, oh, the the sky was red. So I had like this red recent dream, right? Where um, I'm with my uncle, and you know we're in a and and my mom and my brother, and we're like in a cold mountainish scenic environment and all of a sudden it's only me and my uncle and we're just like running right and so there's like a so the sky goes red and for a second i look up and you know it's almost as if all the clouds got sucked into this one huge white ball and someone's you know someone just screamed cloudburst like you know and I was like, shit, right? And so it's me and my uncle just like running. And we go to this like, um, Is it a dream? all these like Christmas. Uh, yeah, so it's a dream, you know, it's, it's bizarre. So we go to take shelter in like this forest kind of like filled with Christmas trees, you know. But, you know, and then I wake up in another dream within this dream. So I wake up what? as a kid, five years old, right? And I'm talking to my dad. And I'm telling you that I just dreamt of this shit and that my dad was like, you couldn't have possibly survived. Like that there was no chance of survival. And then I wake up in, in reality. And so I'm like, fuck, like, you know, <laughs> yeah, was, like, right? And I'm like, is it, am I going to wake up in some other, you know, like, what the fuck, right? Yeah, it was super trippy. And so I took out, like, you know, yeah, it's still my walk. Right? Like, I took out every single like factor like significant factors like red clouds you know white cloud cluster cloudburst christmas trees waking and interpreting the dream within the dream no chance of survival what does cloudburst mean in just like interpreting the dream but also deriving the meaning behind why is it predictive like if you know some dreams you have certain symbols come up and they're like you know this should bring you in future you know like some kind of prosperity or whatever so it goes beyond just like a meaning within the dream but also a meaning for the future i connected the whole dream to a way like i went way deep because with dreams like recording them or documenting them like it has to be precise and so you remember the most, mostly, literally, probably like 15 seconds after you wake up. So you can able, you're able to recollect most of it. I read it on my phone's notes. This apprehendable dynamo of changes is in itself a, a synesthetic prise de conscience. Whatever that is. <laughs> A, a grasping of consciousness in some sense oh, okay. but it's not grasping in the understanding sense it's literally the grasping of, of consciousness which put together as in you know grasping of consciousness it does translate it to, to something similar to understanding but only when you're grasping consciousness okay a floating attention, attention placed onto one's free image association, association. The analysis of the perceptual changes enters the mentis corpus. Now, all the senses include reason slash common sense, i.e. thought, meaning, truth. And so we leap from an empirical phenomenology to a radical epistemology. 
it all needs, needs to be deconstructed, deconstructed and the intention is not to enter a dualism, but to understand the mentis corpus as the center of different channels of cognition to be contained within the imagination, which is actually the imagination or imagining itself. It is not strictly a delusion to be below. What what is that below? The body without organs oh, okay. and delusion thought. It is the organs of the spirit, that is, the organless organs that are the imagination which behaves as both a reservoir, example, the kinesthetic imagination, or the net of signifiers in one's unconscious, and an intelligence, an analytical capacity of the imagination that can understand the images present as well. Why does it seem like I'm praying for some kind of demonic <laughs> shit, dude? Demonic? Yeah, because like, it's like we're both chanting it, and oh, it's yeah. like so, like we're trying to wake up some kind of uh, underlord god. Of this the, is just of... the ritual. <laughs> yeah, whatever. The hypnagogic hallucinations, directly. That is where the magic union between perception and the mind is located, because hypnagogia is where imagination and sense, sense in the sense of meaning and perception, join. Moreover, synesthesia is one of the many species of thinking and images in its joining of imagination to feeling, where ideas can be felt and so the trialectic unfolds back into memory as its, sub as its substrate. However, the seemingly solely spiritual union of imagination and feeling is actually about pure hallucination of the world. Holy shit. <laughs> The image can be uh, can indeed represent understanding. The schizophrenic only feels the consonants, not the vowels. Damn. The poet uh, feels the consonants and sees the sees and feels the vowels, both the light and its many shadows. There you have it. So, I think these are many attempts at re reconciling cognition and mm -hmm. keeping the body in mind in mm -hmm. relation to cognition also as to what is an idea what is an image what is the representation of an idea and how does it connect to all of our unconscious thought and th that mm -hmm. is what we might call the phantasm especially in psychoanalysis this is present um, as a word to describe how the unconscious is this being and non-being which can be represented either through symbols or images mm -hmm. The question is how, and you know, speech is clearly one manifestation of the unconscious, but my underlying argument here is that image thinking and having such a high capacity for introspection enough to be able to see your images is also a viable, 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 oh God, <laughs> a viable way of, a viable way, a viable way of tapping into your unconscious good it's almost as if you linguistically reduce it it's hyper saturated it's many thoughts on one massive paragraph it's working notes yeah it's all. almost like a phenomenological inquiry but you reduce it linguistically to phenomenologically prove it i don't know if that yeah makes sense. yeah totally I, I depend on phenomenology yeah and the liberty that it gives the subject to describe anything that comes to consciousness, that's the goal.
my phenomenology to dissolve the subject-object barrier mm -hmm. and also the subjective-objective one, which are four different things. Yeah. You might find this interesting. It's using also the image of the woman. Yeah, and also has intentionality. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> which is like a sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, this is maybe the most contained phenomenological description of one object that occurs in consciousness. This is, yeah, the most concise um, description of one thing. Okay. We don't have to read it uh, out loud. Okay. You, you don't have to read okay. it either out loud. Neither, <laughs> neither of the two have to. Okay. Where are you? I'm here. <laughs> okay. Let me know whenever you get to the now. To the when? The now. Oh, okay. Okay, I reached now. Okay, so... <laughs> Hume would say that me looking at this Bombay Sapphire bottle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bombay, okay. Yeah. So here we're observing this Bombay Sapphire mm -hmm. bottle. And it seems to be blue. Yeah. Right? The glass. Yeah. So Hume would say that the reason that we see it as blue is not only because blue is an idea that we're projecting onto reality. But mm -hmm. that the condition for that projection is that we've seen it so many times repeated that we allow at a hyper unconscious level this to be blue. No, oh, so it's our mind allowing it? Right, in some sense. Yeah. So that would be the human perspective that mm -hmm. blue is an idea and it's a pattern in our memories and consciousness. But how, how does one get to recognize blue as blue? Because we have eyes. And so mm -hmm. underneath the processes of the eyes, which Hume would say that it's psychological at the end of the day, mm -hmm. this is what, you know. So basically, every yeah. color has an idea. Every color is an idea. Everything, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Essentially. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not Sartre in, in that every color has a consciousness exactly, <laughs> it's, it's more that we're solipsists. And, you know, my consciousness is the only consciousness that, that exists. Mm -hmm. And you're not a figment of my imagination, but a figment of my consciousness. You're not yeah. a physical body to me. Mm -hmm. Because I am this mind. Yeah. <clears throat> um, regardless of that species of idealism, I'm, I'm actually seeing that it's not a human empiricism. Okay. Which means that the reason that we see this as blue... Mm -hmm. and recognize it as a Bombay Sapphire is because of the intricacies and the nuances in the bottle. That, mm -hmm. yes, there is a, a pattern in our mind from seeing many, many of these bottles and having them stored in our memory. Mm -hmm. um, and so we recognize it as that, that. But the original perception, the image of it, is its style. And yeah. it is the conjunction of different colors, different contours of text in this case different uh sizes of the the font no yeah. the um, the, the visual paper on it. okay okay um <clears throat> so it's really how all of the parts join into one and mm -hmm. that joining creates this whole that in itself has has a meaning of its own and is okay. probably larger and more saturated with meaning than all of these parts put together in one
Interesting. So that is perception. Perception is a series of rivers of cognition mm -hmm. that allow gestalts to be formed. A gestalt is what I just explained, that many parts form a whole, and this specific configura configuration allows the whole to have a uniqueness and uh, something on its own that is greater than the parts that compose it. Interesting. Yeah. So that is what, what designs an object in consciousness. And that's why I say intentionality being the same thing as physiognomy then. So physiognomy is the attempt at a study of categorizing types of faces, faces into psychological types. Hmm. Okay. But we can still gain some value from this study just by saying that there is something to the face in itself and now you know nowadays this is supported by cognitive science and our brains having different face recognition networks so it's basically like recognizing the emotive reaction that's that's a good reference point mm -hmm. without a doubt it it means that sense is a lot more sensible than we think Meaning that, you know, walking around with a regular modes of perception might not be how things are really perceived. Okay. So, <clears throat> this Bombay Sapphire bottle has a physiognomy, has an emotive element to it, which our perception creates and depends on for objects to exist outside mm -hmm. of reality. Yeah, but that is quite sort of three of love. <laughs> right? Tell me why. I don't know. I'm, I'm not just, disagreeing. Just the whole... Uh, aspect of uh, a certain object having a consciousness and be uh, emotive faculty or emotive element to it. It's, it's just like where you start to read. Yeah, I'm it's mainly because I'm talking from a Merleau-Pontian perspective. Mm -hmm. In fact, Sartre and Merleau-Ponty had a great friendship and they collaborated mm -hmm. on many projects and protests. So, you know, the thinking of them uh, uh, their own thinking was probably influenced by themselves. Um, yeah, but, so it is Sartre in, in so far as it's a sort of phenomenology of endowing objects with, you know, some sort of being or ontic aura. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's but is it meta ontology though, or is it only all ontology, ontology is meta? All ontology is meta-ontology. Because you're just... You're, if anything, meta-ontology is... Is the study of ontology. And ontology in the first place can only be studied by way of knowledge. So, you know, it's a little bit like the paradox of, you know, where the cat's tail starts and ends. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Like, meta-ontology is, has to be, ontology has to be meta-ontology because we're already looking at it from the lens of epistemology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes sense that way. So, if, if meta-ontology assures us that we're, we have to use epistemology mm -hmm. to study ontology, mm -hmm. then that's just closer to metaphysics. In the sense that metaphysics is this joining of epistemology and ontology. 
yeah i mean yeah that way it does make sense that ontology is almost calling ontology ontology yeah it, it's it's the need to study ontology from you know some sort of a reference point or, or an analogy or an epistemic analogy mm-hmm. to understand ontology and that's already what we're doing by studying ontology because if we're rigorous philosophers we understand that ontology cannot be described or even you know somewhat understood without an epistemology and without recognizing that knowing is unfortunately tied to being we have to understand both of course and maybe meta-ontology might help us understand being pure being proper Mm -hmm. design in itself Uh, i don't know i haven't studied metaphistemology in itself as a classified topic in academia mm-hmm. but to me it just seems like twisting the branch that much more yeah no I've just been reading a lot of because like I remember looking at meta ontology in one of Sartre's book like one of one of it so it was probably either sketch for the theory of emotions or the transcendence of the ego. And so I was like, what is meta-ontology? And I look it up online, right? And there's, um, there's good videos on it online that people can watch. And there was one lecture, you know, I think I did show you, the Quinean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was very interesting. So I was like, huh. It's almost like I, I feel like I read meta-ontology a lot these days because it makes more sense. I, I don't know. It's a, it's such a random statement to say, but... Why is axiology? It's the study of values and aesthetics, things that have meaning in the cells without having a But existence also has compliment. to... Like, we, we do look for meaning within existence. So would that be meta-ontology? No. I don't think so. Interesting. Because I would but we're always stu- we're associate... But we're discussing terms right now. Yeah, but usually... Like it would these... be more interesting to assume what meta-ontology means because I don't even know fundamentally what it means at a, mm-hmm. at a classified level. You know, I haven't read Aquine in depth or even the, the essays of Sartre where he discussed meta-ontology. Um, we could say that meta-ontology describes why is... or how is creativity creating i think that would be you know if we if it's ontology proper then it would be describing creativity in itself which is the same thing as discussing becoming there's there's no no difference there so maybe hegel hegel or hegelian thought is meta ontology i don't know Mm -hmm. because of you know how does consciousness in itself transmute through itself etc you know that's that's how the bare layers of existence are coming into being. Mm-hmm. No, I think I have meta ontology on the wall. <laughs> okay. I just don't remember reading it because I haven't been reading it for some time. It's all on meta ontology. I think I did write the definition for some reason. Yep, it's Quine, Russell, Lewis, Kripke, Modern Analytic Philosophy. And there's a lot of theses that this guy wrote, 
intertwine. The first being, being is not an activity or a process. And it's like endurance is a part of being and sought emphasized on doing like the act of, you know, procedurally moving. Yeah. So it's like doing emphasized some reason that's in the thesis i don't know and then the thesis too is like being is literally equal to existence which is like it shifts the burden from being onto existence yeah to me that's a no-brainer the being equals existence or being equals reality mm -hmm. that's all it's in it's inherent yeah it's yeah. important yeah there is no non-existent poison in the paranoid tree Amazing. The thesis three is being or existence is univocal, context being determination of the number argument. That's quine. Yeah. Yeah, it's all quine. Yeah. Okay. Um, to some extent, yes, being is univocal. And that would be the very spiritualist argument of authentic being existing mm -hmm. i don't i don't think i i don't you know i'm skeptical enough to doubt whether it really exists this authentic being it might as well just be an illusion i think we were discussing this yesterday as well or the day before yesterday there's a story in greek folklore of the boat of thesselus um who was a, a navigator, a sailor, or a captain, I don't know. And he was in a shipwreck, and they, they collected the boat parts, and they sort of put it together, and over the years, the wood mm -hmm. decayed, and they had to put wood back onto the boat. And the question is, is this boat that is here now, after mm -hmm. millennia of storing it, of wood decaying and having to replace it, is this boat that we have now the same as the one that got shipwrecked in some essence yeah but not really though right not not because time changed its value to a certain extent yeah, natural time is mm -hmm. relevant there it's it might as well still be the Salises, or if that's his name uh, i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly being cannot be collected in a fragment in the individual mm. where we as individuals are constantly becoming very much a Heraclitan in, in this point so a pure awareness of being is an ideal to tend to and an idea to try to arrive at epistemologically mm. so an ideal would be axiology because it's a value and the idea of a pure being is a theory that we've just come up with mm. now at a micro level this has obviously been discussed mm. for millennia um but so the latter is knowledge so we assume that this might be the case and so since we assume it we mm. set it as a an object to be attracted towards and that is an ethic by default an ethic has mm. an ideal and that yeah. is axiology that is a value yeah yeah because we were just discussing the whys. Axiology is the why. 
So mm-hmm. why should we follow authentic being? First, because we theorize that it, it exists. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, ontology and epistemology put together. Yeah. And then we do. So the intersection between axiology and doing uh, is, is obvious. It's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are degrees of epistemology to also figure out the axiology. So that is the restrictions of context, I think, etc., determination. Mm-hmm. And determination is fundamentally epistemological because you're determining how can existence exist? What are the yeah. conditions for existence? And from there, you can make ontological claims if you desire to. <laughs> what do you think about Tom Cruise <laughs> and Scientology? Because I do remember you told me that you went into a <laughs> it killed me that day. I was like, this guy is out of it. <laughs> yeah. I infiltrated the Scientology building by paying a considerable, a considerable amount of shekels. Signed no up to way. one of their courses, bought their book and everything, and went for like four or five afternoons to fill out my my textbook that I, w- I had to fill out with essays and, uh, and reflections on, on what the readings of Scientology that they sent to me meant. And of course, I I was you know I, I debate every point, because um, you you'd have to call the supervisor the Scientologist the Scientologist supervisor in your, you know middle school. Sort of, after, class work, space. That's essentially what the Scientology building was. Yeah. So you'd have to call your supervisor, and they'd have to come and check your essay, and tell you whether it was okay or not, and align aligned under the Scientology rules. And the Scientologists have a church, which is even more hilarious. Yeah, and they have money everywhere. So they have churches in literally every country. Dude, as much as I know about Scientology, I know that it was created by this fiction writer. Mm -hmm. This really shitty fiction writer. (laughs) I haven't read his books. No, like Joe Rogan commented on him. He was like, he was like the shittiest fiction writer to exist. And he created Scientology, right? And everyone just, like, joins it. Like, he, he writes his book, no one gives a fuck, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, it's the Scientology, it's this new church, and everyone's on it. Yeah, it's it's very marketable. It's like a... Because it's like Scientology, it's like... Using yeah, also in the name, it's sort of assuring you that whatever it's going to say is true, because it has science to it. But yeah, the empirical... Um, no, I, I mean, it's designed for very impressionable people. It's a soft core psychotherapy, which might have its value. I'm not discounting it at all. Tom Cruise says that he cured his own dyslexia with it. What am I to say whether that's not true and whether Scientology is not an effective method of, of curing yourself from neuroses? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what if that that's actually true? That would like, yeah. I, I think that it might be. Um, Could be. The, the other side of the question is... But he's Tom Cruise. Also, but, you know concerning whether Scientology is viable or not. It, it all depends whether the ethical qualm of mm-hmm. probably stealing millions and millions from people mm-hmm. is enough of an obstacle to regard it as a plausible psychotherapy. I don't know. Using psychoanalysis and Scientology to cure your depression. Coming in here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Hubbard had a concept called the engram, 
which is not unique to him, but he did stress most of his points there. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty reasonable mode of thinking, at least to start from there, from that your memory is created who you are, bad associa- associations between memories will condition your behavior, etc. So I don't think it's completely off. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Regardless if he believes in aliens and stuff like that, but there are many people that do. Yeah, yeah, no, that's and, true. And that, you know, say, try to say serious things. Mm-hmm. So, at least he has the boss to say it. <laughs> true. I mean, he's Tom Cruise again. <laughs> I was discussing Hubbard, but <laughs> fuck Tom Cruise. And also, fuck Fermi's paradox, because... <laughs> It's a waste of time. Okay. Like, who cares if there are other sentient beings out there? We'll just we'll just collide with them in some sort of spaceship. Then, that'd be sad. Eventually, at one point, you know? yeah. Like, fuck SETI. You guys are wasting your time sitting down, you know, with those wonky, oversized parabolas, just to try to trace some radio signs from aliens. If if they're aliens and they're hyper developed, they won't have radio signs and won't depend on like electromagnetism. They will have transcend transcended this this dimension clearly. Yeah, but like as of April, the like twenty twenty, Pentagon was like, oh yeah, we definitely did encounter some alien, made materialistic spaceship, which was not made on the earth, and we did encounter it. So like, literally proving whatever Bob Lazar said true and like just like putting it out there in between of a pandemic and no one cared it was yeah. the most weirdest thing ever because like you you got a fucking notification on your phone right that aliens are potentially real <laughs> and no one cares anymore yeah it's the height of desensitization this year yes to some extent the I, peak. I, don't, I don't know i think that's just who we are as humans we have access to any type of stimulation if, if we can't do anything with the alien you know, then what's the use of it? True. Like, we only know that there are aliens because we have technically their technology. Who says that it's not Russian technology or Chinese experimental technology? We, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think that the Bob Lazar... The whole dark matter and, like, gravity bending yeah. dark material that he encountered in the yeah. CIA. I don't know, yeah, they space. found that the spaceships could control gravity. Yeah. And that's what allowed them to move so quickly because they were somehow falling in the air mm-hmm. to to fly. I feel like that's where Christopher Nolan got the idea for Tenet because it makes all the sense. Like you, you, you think about, okay, gravity bending dark material and then you just like, oh yeah, what if effect comes before cause? Like that could have been a direct inspiration, honestly. <laughs> if he was just like listening to Bob Lazar for like an hour and he comes up with this shit, it makes all the sense. Yeah, maybe. I mean, these ideas are floating in the imaginary unconscious always since mm-hmm. a while back. I don't know. If you're I'm questioning the I mean, abstract... Fuck Bob Lazar, dude. <laughs> he got raided by the CIA. I don't trust you. <laughs> no, no. I don't fucking trust Bob Lazar. Fuck him. But he got raided by the CIA. That's like one of the indicators why you should trust him. Fuck fuck the CIA, fuck Bob Lazar, and fuck the the documentary guy that records him with a long beard and and with white hair. 
Don't really know that guy. No. Whatever the interviewer of the whole thing. Fuck him too. Okay. Fuck <laughs> Bob Lazar. Okay. All right. <laughs> what do you know about this target? I don't even know what that is. Oh shit! So, twelfth of December every year is when the Saturn and the Jupiter come really close or something like that, and it's like a whole astronomical, you know, like event. And Terence McKenna said that on that day, if you were to, you know, consciously explore your consciousness, um, you can reach the highest of the highest levels of altered states and higher, higher states and also some sort of meaningful, I don't know, conscious like blessing or whatever you get out of the whole thing. So it's like a whole day where Saturn and Jupiter come together and it has a psychical significance. Mm-hmm. So weird, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to experiment with them to see if that's the case or not. But <laughs> like, what is Target? Like, if it's if it's reaching higher states of consciousness, then I'm already there. But I don't feel any kind of psychical influence of the planets on my head. Like, I've never... I just feel like it's such... I don't discount it entirely either. I mean, who knows whether the sun has information trespassing systems between our bodily beings and mm-hmm. it as a being. This sun as, as a being that can somehow trespass information. It can be through physical means, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, the slight change in gravity as a result of the sun might cause something. I don't know. You know, this is speculated a lot whether sun have intelligences is, or not. Yeah, but sun is like the alchemical sulfur, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has, yeah. It has huge uh, significance, yeah, too. There are many types of suns in alchemy as well. Yeah, I, I, I do but remember. It's all metaphors for the mind. So, like, alchemy mm-hmm. does not matter at a phenomenological level. It only matters as a metaphor to describe the phenomenology of the psyche in its psychical inversion which is affect Mm -hmm. psychical inversion which is affect nice yeah of the phenomenology of the psyche Mm -hmm. which you know is only apprehendable through some sort of science be it neuroscience or behaviorist psychology or whatever schematization is made Mm -hmm. So yeah, alchemy I think is only valuable insofar as we take it as a an indirect representation of the psyche, mm-hmm. which might be more direct than we think. Yeah. So it's it's the question between metaphor and fact. So mm-hmm. many things are metaphorically useful, but we can't conflate it as a fact. And I think alchemy is one of the thing those things that is so close to being a fact because of the rigor behind the science mm-hmm. that we might misinterpret it. Um, but yeah, the goal is to see it as the way, the same way in theory that Jung saw it, which is well, these guys are pouring their minds on papers, thinking that they're, you know, they're exploring the elements and how they interact between them. But they had, they didn't have empirical instruments to test out what they were, you know, the chemical reactions that they were, they were, speculating about you know the, these chemical reactions were in 
the alchemists' thoughts. Mm -hmm. and they yeah, weren't. they were looking for the philosopher's stone. Yeah. They were all blinded by the idea of achieving immortality through some kind of chemical recipe, right? Yeah. Yeah. In theory, the philosopher's stone could create gold. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. I think the Chinese, and the, and the Latin, the Romans, maybe Greeks, who knows, they were the ones who, really emphasized. I think it was more of the Chinese though, who really looked after, like, who went after the philosophers. So, I think there was one king, who literally deployed all of his army, for searching for the philosopher's stone, which is so dumb, but that's how it was back in the day. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, fundamentally, the, I think that one of the main things that we can conclude from alchemy is that there's no distinction between consciousness and the Philosopher's Stone. And that would be the most existential of remarks. Because you have the option of transmuting yourself from lead to gold. It's you who has the power to do that. That is the alchemist's goal, goal not to finally you know, find a piece of technology that can create gold you are the technology and you're creating value in your life that is supposed to align with with what you need mm -hmm. it's what jung said that you have to go from negredo to albedo to rubido so it's like from black to white to ruby but in alchemical terms for like process of individuation yeah yeah the processes of, of the psyche are mirrored by alchemy and you can use it as a therapy. You know, you can you can analogize any neurosis into alchemy and probably find something useful. Yeah. But it's because alchemy has a poetic in itself. That's what I'm trying to explain. It's it's a mere poetic. Nothing more. It's unfortunate, but it's very, you know, it's historically valuable without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And psychologically, if you think that that's a good therapy to apply. So tell me more about your book, the Which, one that you published in 2017. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> a year before that, I started writing poetry for the first time in my life and found that I was pretty able. And, you know, I shared many of my writings with my teachers and they really enjoyed them. And so that motivated me to collect all of the ones that I had done until that point which was the end of 2017 and I ended up making a collection of poems of all the ones that I had written in 2016 so when I was 16 and publishing it and what resulted was ultrasound <laughs> and what came out was a collection of poems that a 16 year old had wrote. So, yeah, the, the goal of that publication in itself was to demonstrate that young people or, you know, adolescents can in fact write poetry and can do it quite well. And my demonstration was not only the poems in themselves, but the order in which I laid out the poems, which was chronological. So people could see my progress. It makes so much more sense, yeah. yeah. But now it's the fan around. <laughs> Episode 2 coming soon, probably in the, in the next two months. No! <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere, somewhere in the next eight weeks. Somewhere in the next eight weeks. Yeah. <laughs>
but in my writings, like these ones specifically, have to be read like four or five times over. And then no, I'll yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah.